I am excited to co-host our series with Sami Kallinen, who brings with him his extensive knowledge and background in media and data. Sami, why do we refer to this podcast as DRIP? <laughs> I, I suppose the fundamental concept is to delve deep into the constantly evolving media landscape and strive to offer um, these nudges or drops or drips of insights into the world. Like drip by drip? Yeah, exactly. But Ritva, uh, what do we have planned for today's discussion? Today, uh, we have a guest who has very unique view on changing media landscape and uh, who possesses specialized knowledge of the ecosystem, particularly how newsrooms prepare for the next shift of media. Our podcast series called DRIP is part of the Optimizing User Experience project and it's launched in early May. Today we have a great honor to talk with Nick Newman, who is the Senior Research Associate at Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. So, uh, what do you know about Nick and his work, Ritva? First of all, I know that Nick Newman used to work at the BBC and played a key role in shaping the internet services and social media strategies and guidelines. Um, he has witnessed uh, the fundamental change from uh, broadcast and print media to digital media. And this transformation is also familiar to me from my previous role as a head of multi-platform. However, Nick Newman has a much wider view as he has been the lead author of the annual digital news report since 2012. That's 13 years. The report is one of the most respected and frequently cited in media industry. Additionally, Newman is the creator of journalism trends and predictions, which anticipates essential changes in the industry. So I can say that uh, these two annual reports have been essential sources of knowledge and tools for my previous work, where the focus was constantly on understanding how people's media behavior was changing rapidly and how to comprehend the drivers of, of these changes. So I see that Nick Newman is a key person who can interpret future changes, taking into account what has already occurred. Sami, what do you know about Nick Newman? Yeah, I'm familiar with it as well. Been following his work for many years and used it in uh, different uh, organizations. Um, it's excellent work, and I'm uh, I'm super stoked to have the opportunity to chat with him today and uh, talk about uh, kind of recent phenomena within our industry. Great, thank you very much. Nick Newman, warmly welcome to our podcast. It is great to have you as our guest today. It's very good to be here. Really looking forward to the discussion. As the lead author of Digital News Report and the creator of the Journalism Trends and Predictions Report, how do you view digital transformation currently? Um, it's, a, it's a great starting point. I mean, I think the last 10 years have been about um, media companies really transforming their businesses. So it's been about digital transformation. And I think the next 10 years is about how we 
take our digital content and transform that, how we make that more relevant and more engaging. And, um, you know, when we think about how we do that, how we transform our digital content, a lot of that is about technology. It's about using artificial intelligence, which is obviously the buzzword right now. Um, but it's not just about technology. It's also about rethinking the vision and purpose of, of our organizations to fit uh, changing behaviors, changing society. It's about rebuilding trust in journalism, hopefully, you know, all of these things. So I, I, th I think that you know the next 10 years is actually going to look very different from the last 10 years, which has been about that transformation. What were the main drivers or observations which made you to start with these reports? Uh, well, there's, the, there's two reports. So the, the first one is, is sort of trends and predictions, which actually I've been doing for over 15 years. So I started it when I was working at the BBC. And I think I, uh, and, and this was really my attempt to understand the enormous impact of technology on my on on my business on journalism and uh, so you know the trends and predictions was really about at least once a year sort of trying to separate the froth the hype from the the sort of key underlying drivers which we needed to pay attention to and so my approach to that was basically writing it down and talking to a lot of people every year and so I started it as an internal project at the BBC and then eventually sort of produced it as a uh, as a working paper every year. The digital news report, which we started in 2012, is slightly different. It's based on audience surveys, so it's about evidence, and it's about uh, the inspiration for that was Pew's work in the US, where they did amazing research over time and really helped people understand the changes that we were being that we that we'd been through and what we needed to do about it, and made it relevant to industry. So that's part of our mission. What's different about what we were trying to do was to fill that gap so that. It wasn't just about one country, but it was comparative. You know, you could see in any country in the world how you compared with with other countries, and there was a real gap there. We felt uh, so over time between countries, and also critical for us was just making that open and free, so that anybody could access it and use it, whether they worked in industry, whether they worked in platforms, whether they worked in technology, or with regulators. So that was the ambition. We started in 2012, and we're now uh, we reach half the world's population, so 46 different countries uh, represented in 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 a in a survey, and then the analysis we put on top of it. For I think what we we were able to do was really capture a period of very intense change. I remember when we started it, people said, "Well, if you're going to publish it every year, you won't have enough new to say." Uh, well, well, that wasn't right because you know this was this was when social media was blowing up. This was when mobile was blowing up. So we really sort of I think caught the wave of the disruption of the social and mobile revolution. And you know, every year, for example, we could see that um, people were relying increasingly on their on the on these small personal devices that were completely transformative in terms of content, in terms of business models, in terms of you know, the way in which people access news. And then social media, obviously, um, again, I think, you know, we started a couple of years after, you know, the, the big the big sort of uh, Arab Spring. Uh, so you really had, um, again, we captured the beginning of that wave and then the sort of peak in around 2016 when you had, um, you know, social media really changing the world in terms of, um, you know, these political upheavals in the United States, Brexit in the UK, you know, partly driven by... Um, by some of the things people saw in social media, so we were able to capture that, and then, and then, um, you know, the, the continuing change up until this next series of innovations. How would you describe yourself? What is the value of these reports? 
the value of the reports. Um, uh, well, I, I, probably not for me to say, but I mean, what we what we aim to do is to provide not just data but insights that help people make decisions. So the mission of the Reuters Institute is to bridge academia and industry, and you know, and and I think that's partly because there's a sense there's a lot of clever people in academia, but they're not necessarily working on things that industry cares about or in a language that that is understandable. And so we've really tried to. Uh, to bridge that. So my background is as a journalist, not as an academic, and I work here with with academics who are interested in bridging that divide. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the value is that you know we know that over time, you know, this report is now read by boardrooms. We go and do private presentations in commercial organisations and public media organisations every year, and every year interest in it grows because I think the value increases over time because you have more data to answer some of these big questions. You know, some of the questions like, um, are young people, don't they just grow into news later, which is one of the questions we always get, you know. So it's not a problem if they're not interested in news now. Well, we can show that over time, that's changed, that young people aren't going to go back to reading a newspaper because we have data that goes on long enough. So some of those sort of bigger questions, uh, I think, over time, the survey and having all of that data um, I think will help to answer. You have been working over 10 years on these reports. Uh, what are your main findings? What have you learned? I've talked about one of them already, which I think is the social and mobile change. So at the beginning of, um, you know, when we started in 2012, primarily people were accessing via computers, via desktop computers or laptop computers. And then now the vast majority of people say their main source of news, the main device they use is a mobile phone. And that's com- you know completely transformational. It's still digital media, but it's it, it's so different. The context, um, the uh, the way you access things, the formats, uh, the way that digital advertising it didn't really work on a computer, but, but it definitely doesn't work on a, on one of these small small devices. So I, I, you know I think that's one of the things. I think the other thing is just the we also witnessed the the sort of further transformation really away from traditional forms of media. To digital media, which you know is is not complete, but is um, so. For example, we witnessed during the period 2012 to 2023, um, print in most of the uh, countries that we look at has halved or more than halved in terms of the percentage of people who access uh, print newspaper or magazine weekly around news. And then we're starting to see uh, similar levels of decline in television news, uh, and so that is really significant because television really was the medium that enabled mass medium uh, essentially not just you know elites but um uh, people of lower educational standards and also um uh, people who are just less interested in news um would come across news via television news and i think that's going to be incredibly significant as that continues over the next five years so i think that sort of we, the move from from analog to digital, and then within digital, the social and mobile revolution, those are really the two big changes that we've seen. I mean, at slightly different paces in different countries. Um, and you know, you're you're in Finland, which is always the exception to almost everything in that you have higher trust in institutions, but also um, much less influenced by, um, by American um, Uh, tech giants, for example. So, of course, you use Google for shopping and and a lot of other things. But around news, you know, actually, Finnish media companies and Nordic media companies generally have much more direct connections. But um, so it's not it's not like it's not happening in a 
in a u- universal way. Those trends are happening everywhere in terms of the move, you know, decline of television, the decline of print. Those trends are happening everywhere, but they're happening at different paces. Uh, but things like, you know, it's not, it's perfectly possible for media companies in small countries, certainly where you're protected by language, to still have direct connections with, um, with, with readers and to make very substantial profits, commercial profits. That's much harder, as we've seen recently with the decline of, you know, BuzzFeed and Vice News in markets like, you know, English, where you, you have this absolute abundance of content. And it's really hard to stand out, even if you have, you know, an enormous market. Uh, advertising is really not, um, it, it isn't, doesn't seem to be a sustainable solution for those types of businesses. Um, so, you know, I think the business model argument is going to be different and the future is going to be very different for small markets. Uh, and for large markets, uh, um, partly protected or not by language, though, of course, AI may change that. Interesting. Do you think that it's just a matter of catch up until these markets are affected in the same way as the larger ones are currently? Or do you believe that it is a unique trait of the smaller markets with smaller languages that will endure? I mean, regardless of how AI will affect the language question. Uh, I think it's it, it's it's hard to know because there's multiple factors going on. And so so some of the one of the reasons is is um, it's a smaller market. So you know Google and Facebook weren't very interested in Finland and Finnish, um, and you know they don't put a lot of effort into it in the in the way that they have with with sort of larger markets. But I think it's it's also to do with uh, with culture, with tradition, with geography. There's a whole load of of um, of reasons why. And those are obviously much more enduring. So, you know, Finland, I think, traditionally has one of the highest newspaper readerships in the world. Um, so, you know, you've just got this incredibly strong culture of of reading combined with high trust, and uh, that's that's not the case in many other countries. So that might decline over time. Um, uh, and then, you know, some some things like the protection of of language may disappear when AI basically allows anyone to read anything in any language, but it may not, you know, or it may take a lot longer than we think. One of those reasons might also be that in Finland, we do have a lot of trust in institutions. And, and that, that is a very good point because it is incredibly different. One of the things we notice when we look at our trust scores is that, um, you know, many of the countries with that, that are really very divided and polarized for all kinds of reasons, nothing to do with the technology have much lower levels of trust and they have low, low levels of trust in news, but also in institutions. There's a very direct connection between the two. And a lot of it is really about politics and political agendas and the, and the strength of those debates around politics and culture, uh, which is not to say you don't have some of those in, in Finland and Nordic countries, you do, but not to the same extent. So far, talking about digital, we as media professionals have focused a lot on platforms and audience behavior. But next, uh, what will be the role of innovation and new story formats? Um, I think, I mean, th- I, at the beginning, I talked about the importance of, um, of of relevance and engagement. I mean, I think this is really the challenge we have at the moment in a world of abundant media. Um, media companies are really struggling to get people's attention and to keep people's attention. So um, innovation is going to be critical in trying to address that problem. I mean, that problem comes out in lots of ways, including news avoidance and um, uh, people sort of turning away from news. Uh, and in terms of you know innovation solutions um, around storytelling and connection, this is really, these are the areas where, where I think 
um, you know, the, the media needs to needs to really focus its effort. And so, if we think about storytelling, um, we've sort of moved from thinking about purely lots of words to trying to engage people with more innovative ways to tell stories, whether that's sort of interactive features, whether it's video, whether it's TikToks, whether it's compressed storytelling, which is a really, um, you know, I think you sort of Axios style bullet points, I think has been really interesting because one of the sort of key needs that people have in this world of abundant media is get me to the point that I really need. I just want the insight. I don't want you know, so this is moving away from the article. I think access has been really interesting in that regard. Um, but there are different need states. So compressed storytelling is is relevant for some people or some kinds of stories some of the time when you're in active information-seeking mode. But people still also want to luxuriate with a piece of great writing or with a, uh, a two-and-a-half-hour podcast or whatever. So it's not all about compression. And so it's really this fragmentation of formats and innovation around formats, which I think has been the story actually of the last few years, really since COVID, explanatory formats, you know, uh, Q&A formats. So just moving away from this sort of single, okay, it's either a television package of a minute and a half or it's a 800-word article into into that kind of innovation. So I think that's that's kind of one part of it, but that that's not enough on its own in terms of innovation. We also need to think about different kinds of innovation. But do media organizations understand this concept? Is there necessary innovation actually happening? I think news organizations get get a tough rap um, for for not um, investing enough or not innovating enough. Um, and I think it depends. You know, I, I think some media companies have done an amazing job, and you know, given the lack of resources um, and the difficulty on the business model side, they have continued to invest in. Um, in innovating business formats, um, you know things, you know, Financial Times, for example, innovating around um, about paid models. The the New York Times consistently trying to, you know, changing business models, finding that didn't work, trying something else. Um, you know, they've got there through trial and error and innovation, uh, and have become very profitable, very successful. And then there are obviously uh, others who have failed, like you know. BuzzFeed, who did a huge amount of innovation. So the problem wasn't innovation. The problem was misreading some of the big trends and just or just getting the timing wrong. You know, uh, I actually think there's been a lot of innovation. In your report, you have mentioned news avoidance uh, as one of the trends. And we see that this trend has been growing for a while. How much should we be concerned about uh, news avoidance in Western democracies? Yeah, we've, we've talked about news avoidance in the digital news report for the last few years, um, and we've done a lot more work on it in the 2023 report to truly understand this the nuance of it, because it's quite a com complicated um, subject. And what we've really identified is sort of two different, different problems, really, or related problems. So the first is there's a group of people who we find in many countries who are becoming increasingly disconnected from news. So in some countries like the US and UK, it's around 10% who say they don't consume any traditional media or even news via social media in in, in a week. Uh, that's much lower in 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 uh, you know countries like Kenya or, or Africa where news really, really matters, or even in Nordic countries as well. But um, and then the, some people call these news outsiders. Um, and then there's a second group that we call selective news avoiders. So these are people who do consume news, they are interested in news, but they avoid some of the news some of the time. 
Um, uh, quite often, these are big stories. The, the things journalists care about the most, like you know, Ukraine, cost of living, uh, COVID, even you know, people talking about avoiding these stories because they feel they just make them depressed. You know, it's just this sort of endless cycle of doom scrolling through negative stories, um, and um, also because they feel overwhelmed. You know, there's just there's so much news; it's coming at you all the time. You know, they feel they need to ration it. So we have a group of people who, who um, essentially quite often are, are saying, well, I'm going to stop listening to the news in the morning, or I'm going to stop listening to the news in the evening, or I'm going to turn off my mobile no phone notifications. So there's a lot of that going on right now. Um, and maybe this is not a, a problem. This is just us sensibly rationing when we get the news. Um, uh, and then there's, um, there's other groups of people, as I say, who are avoiding particular stories. And I think that is concerning because, um, you know, these stories matter. And uh, if people are turning away from them because... We're not. We're, we're basically depressing them. Then there's probably something wrong with the product, and this is where we're we're sort of getting into whether journalism really accurately reflects what's going on in the world, or it puts this negative lens on everything. There's been a big debate about this about whether we should, you know, be creating more positive news or not just talking or have more solutions kind of journalism, which is not just pointing out the problems, but also trying to give people a sense of what they can do about it, give them a sense of agency in the world. So I think uh, that's what's really interesting is we're starting to see, you know, journalistic movements to try and change the way newsrooms operate, which is very hard because, uh, you know, changing cultures in newsrooms, as you know, is, is really tough. What about users um, or readers or subscribers? Do media organizations actually understand them or know them? <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that was the um, that was the promise of digital, right? It was going to be it was fantastic. We were going to, for the first time we were going to understand our users, and you know, uh, I remember when we started the BBC News website, it was incredibly exciting. You know, the next day, so we didn't get in real time, but we got it the next day. We we, we found out which stories were actually worth writing and which ones weren't right, worth writing. Um, but of course, the problem was we got we got hooked on the metrics and we got hooked on the. Um, uh, you know the excitement of, uh, of of seeing that, and so we we started writing more stories um, that people wanted to read, rather than necessarily things that we cared about or were true to our journalistic mission. And you know that's that's I think um, in retrospect definitely undermined a lot of the trust in journalism. You know people talk about this in focus groups regularly. You know people just you know you're writing terms like clickbait come up naturally um, because people feel that they're being manipulated. As they were for many years, because journalists were trying to um, essentially get attention, uh, and that led to, to sort of issues of trust. I think where we've got to now in terms of measurement is um, partly because the sort of traditional reach models aren't working anymore because advertising uh, it has been taken a lot of the advertising has been taken by the big big platforms. Uh, so, so the focus now in terms of measurement has moved from reach. And page views to engagement and impact, which of course are much harder to measure. Um, but you know, particularly if if you think about subscription models, it's all about you know loyalty. So how often people come back would be some of the measurements that people are using. Uh, how much time people might be spending with uh, with content, uh, how much value they're getting out of content, and how much the content that they read changes the world. 
So the, these are the kinds of metrics that media companies are, are, are really wrestling with right now, particularly if you're in a subscription business, because that's the predictor that people are going to uh, continue to be subscribers, for example, and want to pay money for you. One of the issues that experts have been really worried about uh, is the importance of uh, trust. What do you think? How does journalism succeed in building trust among different audiences? Yes, I mean, there's a sort of, there's a, um, I think, you know, a, a couple of assumptions in that. So, I mean, I think ju journalists, journalists often like to fall back on this view that, um, that big media companies and journalism is an independent force for good. Um, it's a critical part of the checks and balances of democratic society. We hold rich and powerful people to account without fear and favor. You know, that's the, that's the narrative, right? But the, the, the truth is that there's many types of journalistic organizations. And certainly from our data, if you, if you talk to audiences, um, that's not how audiences see it. You know, audiences uh, only on average, only about 40% say they trust most news most of the time, a bit higher in Finland, of course, but but broadly in big countries like the US and UK, only about 30%. Um, and uh, so, you know, th th there's this sort of mismatch, I think, between journalist impressions of what they're doing and what audiences want. And then audiences are also finding um, new ways to get trust. So it's not about... A legacy media company. It's about is the content that I'm getting valuable? Is it speaking to me? Is it relevant? And um, so, you know, that that can come from a Substack newsletter of a real expert who's building a strong relationship. It can come from a podcaster. It can come from a YouTuber. It can come from an influencer. So, I think you know, clearly um, providing value, utility. Um, uh, um, you know, quality uh, journalism. I think these the, these obviously are important and, and important for building trust, but they don't necessarily have to come from legacy media organizations. Having said that, I do think that um, to hold rich and powerful people to account and to manage the legal processes behind that, which are often very complicated and very expensive, you do need scale. You do need big institutions, if you like. And I think without those institutions, um, it's going to be very difficult. You can't do it with a whole load of micro um uh, producers of content. So I think that uh, we we need uh, strong legacy media organizations, but we also need um, innovation and, uh, and and a range of views as well. As, as this podcast is part of a, a larger project where we are investigating how data uh, can be used to optimize and improve the user experience or the reader experience uh, in media companies, um, we are, of course, curious about your tech. You already talked a few questions back a little bit about analytics and how we historically used analytics and also a little bit about the crisis in a sense of analytics and what kind of journalism it produced. But if you look uh, towards the end of 23 and beyond, what, what's your take on the current state of doing that, uh, using data to enhance the user experience, uh, customer experiences in the media industry? What trends do you see? Um, I think, I mean, I, th I think the way I think about um, artificial intelligence and this sort of next phase that we're moving into is that there are um, the sort of sort of three. If you think about the news value chain, there are different ways in which we can use data to enhance what journalism does. So, firstly, on on the news gathering side, um, 
you know there are there are lo- there's a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities to do what we do more quickly if you think about all the data that is now used to um to identify to, to find stories uh, so sort of big um data investigations for example and ways in which ai can make a lot of the process of cleaning data to enable that to happen much quicker so i think that's one area that um ai is really going to help speed up the process but also hopefully uncover you know more um uh more bad behavior and hold people to account i think the second area is in um packaging information i think this is one of the sort of key areas where um ai and automation is really going to change the nature of newsrooms and what we do uh, and that, I think, partly speaks to some of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of producing more relevant content because you can produce it in different languages, you can produce it in different formats much more quickly. So, in, again, you know, enabling journalists to focus on the journalism rather than sort of re- reformatting a lot of things. So AI, I think, is going to be really useful in, in that regard. And then the third thing, which I think you, you sort of alluded to, is around sort of, I guess, personalization. So how do you recommend, how do you use data to analyze uh, what it is somebody wants and then deliver more of what they of, of what they need at a particular moment in time. And we've done that in very crude ways up until now, and AI holds out the promise, or the possibility at least, of doing that much more effectively in terms of recommendations. And obviously, you know, publishers are experimenting with that. I think there's a long way to go, and it's a really hard thing to do with news. But I think those are broadly the three, that, you know, th- those are the areas where I think AI holds out a lot of possibilities going forward. There's a lot of problems as well, but I think those are some of the potential areas in which we can use data better. On the topic of AI, uh, since ChatGPT was launched nearly a year ago now, in fact, um, it has generated an exceptional amount of hype and extensive discussion, and the event was unprecedented in how it introduced the concept, AI in this case, or AI of sorts at least, to the consciousness of the general public. But from the perspective of our industry, what is your general take on this AI moment? Right, yeah. So I, th- I think there's obviously a huge amount of hype, and it's going to take a lot longer than people think. And it's going to be much harder than people think. Um, but you know, in my optimistic moments, it 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 you know, if, if you look at the problem that we have to solve, the problem is that relevance challenge, that engagement challenge. I think this is one of the things that uh, we can use to help us to augment what we do, to make our content and our mission more relevant, um, and to deal with some of these issues of fragmentation of formats and, and behaviors. Um, I think the main influence is going to be um, that bit in the middle really is about uh, augmenting what journalists do, making things faster and more efficient across the news value chain. There's a lot of talk about, you know, putting journalists out of jobs, and I'm sure there'll be some of that. But, you know, fundamentally, I think it's about doing, enabling us to do what we do already, but do it do it better. Um, and so, but but I think actually making this happen in organizations is is going to be tough because it involves you know changing in many cases workflow the way journalists think about things um there's a lot of education to be done i think about how ai works and 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 how it can augment there's a lot of fear in in newsrooms as well and then there's a lot of really existential disruptive aspects which i'm worried about but but the the things i'm less worried about are some of those opportunities 
I think we need to learn the lessons. And I guess we've got the benefit of learning the lessons. We've kind of been through some of this with social media as well of, um, of doing it quickly. So being um, and communicating much better what we're doing, why we're doing, because there's a lot of, as I say, a lot of hype, a lot of talk around it. And we shouldn't be led by the technology. It's very much about, you know, we should be rooted in the vision of the organization, the mission of the organization, and thinking about how uh, this technology can help us achieve what we want to do. I think the mistake we ma- we've made in the past quite often with technological developments is we've been sort of focused on the technology and said, oh, here's a piece of technology, let's use that technology, rather than thinking about how does it how does it fit our vision? How does it fit our business model? Which bit of this can we use? And so the result is that many media companies were really blown blown around by the interests of the big tech uh, companies and sang to their tune and uh, and in many cases got burned financially and in, in other ways as well in terms of trust. So that, you know, got to be careful that doesn't happen again. How is uh, the disruption caused by AI different from the Uh, disruptions caused by web, mobile, and social media in the past. What should we do differently? Uh, I think I think the main difference is that uh, social media and, to a large extent, the mobile was really about the distribution side of of the news value chain. So it, you know, it gave the platforms and the aggregators. That relationship with the, that direct relationship with consumers, so they were able then to take some of the value, um, and they were using the content of news to help drive and build their businesses. Um, and I think that uh, AI is different because it's not just about that distribution side. It's a it's a really it's a much broader set of technologies. It's a lot of different things actually. And to understand it, we need to unpack it because there will be a, a range of different possibilities and dangers. Um, but it doesn't just affect the distribution. It affects, as I've said, it affects the the packaging. It affects the um, the news gathering. So you know, it, it's it's right at the heart of, of of news organizations. And the danger of that is you can you can expect then a few big companies not just to dominate the distribution, but to dominate um, you know other aspects of your business as well. So it gives them a lot more potentially gives them a lot more control. You know, big companies, Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, potentially the three big players in this field could could have really dominant um, positions, even more dominant positions uh, within the news business. And so that's um, that's a worry. And, uh, you know, that's obviously the the danger of the competition side of, uh, of, of, of what might happen. Um, uh, so I think, you know, to answer that, that what what it's really going back to what I, I talked about earlier media companies need to be super clear about what they want to do and then what these technologies can help them achieve rather than be blown around by um by the technology so a couple of questions back nick you mentioned that there are aspects of the ai revolution that scares you uh Could you tell us about what, what those are? Are you in the camp of uh, Elon Musk's, etc., in San Francisco, who think the killer robots will will take over, or uh, what are the things that worry you? Uh, I'm definitely less worried about killer robots take, taking over um, for now. Uh, I'm really worried about right now. I'm worried about two things. I think so. One is the potential that a flood of synthetic media will. Because uh, there's definitely going to be a flood of of low quality synthetic media, um, could uh, pollute or further pollute our information ecosystem, and uh, so that may be you know fake images that are created for fun, or it could be fake images that are created uh, to deceive people. Um, 
uh, or it could be you know facts that are wrong, hallucinations in in AI terms, uh, and then that becomes the part of the training set on which you know future answers become uh, become clear. So you know the result of that is it potentially makes it harder to work out what is true and what is false, undermining you know potentially undermining trust in all information, feeding conspiracy theories, um, essentially taking where we are now. But putting it on warp speed. I mean that that that's that's the fear. Uh, and then of course, you know, going back to the conversation we had about clickbait, this again could be clickbait on acid. You know, this is this is uh, media companies then trying to compete to feed the the algorithm uh, even further because it's even harder to get attention. So I'm I'm definitely worried about that. Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely no idea which way that's going to go. But I think that's going to be a huge theme for the next uh, five years. I think the second thing. Uh, is really about the the sort of disruption to the business models of, of media. So whatever you think of the relationship between platforms and media companies, there's been a relatively symbiotic relationship where there's been a deal that uh, um, the platforms have helped drive traffic to, to get different kinds of audiences that aren't going to come direct to media companies. Um, and in return, the, plat- the, the platforms... Um, uh, get get some content, and AI really is going to change that model because um, the systems themselves will be able to summarize and then personalize pretty much anything and provide the answers right there and then. There's no need to refer anybody on to another website because all of that is going to be provided in the shortest time possible by the AI. That's the whole point. Um, so um, yeah, so so I, th- I think that that's potentially hugely disruptive. And uh, so part of the part of the problem is really about competition and the power of these big platforms um, and what kind of regulation is required around that. And part of it is, you know, how how do we deal with the next wave of fake and false media? Yes, that makes sense. And I assume you're referring to the idea where Google search, for example, directly provides the content instead of uh, just links, thus making media, if you like, uh, unnecessary. Yeah, basically, I mean, it's, it's not like the we haven't sort of come across this before. I mean, we talked about this, I think I raised a report a few years ago about voice, which was essentially this, you know, the, the, in, in a voice environment where you ask a question and you get an answer, there is no sort of 10 links that you then go and get further information. Um, you know, you just want the answer and you, and you get the answer. But I think there will also, as we've seen with voice, there are also possibilities to provide, uh, if you like, longer or um, you know, to use voice to trigger a real immersive experience. So I think both things are possible, um, but I think it does show that that's really where the future business models for media companies are. It's not in sort of quick information. It's going to be about doing something that the AI can't do, to do something more human, to be uh, about building relationships. You know, that's why things like, like podcasts are probably in a better position than if you're writing, you know, short travel guide articles or doing quizzes because AI is going to do that more effectively. Uh, great stuff. How, how much have you looked at this sort of um, intellectual property problems that AI might bring? Uh, questions of copyright, uh, legal stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. That's obviously this is this is where the fights are going to be. I mean, uh, because I mean, if you just think about what I was just talking about in terms of the the business model, and a number of media companies absolutely understood this is the danger. Um, 
because you know the the referral traffic from social has been going down in the last few years, and the referral traffic from search for many publishers has also been going down. So you know, publishers are already feeling these effects, and they see this as the next big danger. So they're looking actively about how they can stop being crawled. I mean, you know, OpenAI and others are, are trained uh, on news content, um, uh, but the publishers didn't give permission for for that in many cases. So I think we're, we're obviously going to need to move to a, to to some some licensing system. And of course, there are many examples of where around pictures, for example, Adobe um, are doing deals already to have um, to have content trained on content where there is a, a license fee paid. And I think that's going to be a key part of the future. Um, but yeah, me- media companies have only just started thinking about this problem, and we've only really seen ChatGPT, um, you know, in the wild since November last year. So this is very, very new. Um, but yeah, the lawyers are going to be in good business for the next few years. What about Providence? Uh, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Providence, I guess, is the word. What about that? There's, for instance, Google in their products. They said that they will do watermarks, that kind of things. That you you need to be able to separate what has been produced by AI and what has not been produced by AI. Do you have thoughts about that? I think it's it's difficult. I think it, I think it's easy with some things, you know, original photographs or. Um, but a lot of news is just packaging and repackaging. You know, if you think about television news, you know, it, it's repackaging agency stuff or, you know, stuff from from elsewhere. It's very hard to sort of separate those things out when you're talking about news news. Um, um, but yes, yeah, certain things, um, this has been a challenge for, for many years and the, and the platforms have really struggled to work out what is original analysis, for example, and to be able to separate that out algorithmically from, from, from other types of content. Um, What's quality content and what's less quality content? I mean, we've been talking about this literally for you know fifteen and twenty years, and not getting much closer to the solution. And I'm not sure AI is going to solve that um, completely. Um, but yes, I mean the, 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 these and with all of these things, I, I I really don't have the answers, and and most people have the answers because we simply don't. There's too many variables. We simply don't know what's going to happen. Um, but we know the questions. But does it mean then, if we can't solve it technically, does it mean that we need to change um, journalistic guidelines, how we disclose, how, how we use these tools? Or is that even possible? I mean, uh, spell checking, we don't disclose that we're using spell checking in, in word processors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, to be honest, I think that's one thing that we can do pretty quickly. And I think most media companies are doing right now is coming up with guidelines for um, how we should use it internally, um, what, uh, you know, ethically, how how, how we want to use AI, um, uh, what principles we're going to attach to it. And then in particular, you know, what we tell audiences when. And, you know, if you think about the packaging part that I talked about earlier, we're clearly going to use AI in all kinds of packaging, but the audience doesn't necessarily need to know that AI was involved in translating something, or maybe it does. I don't know. We need to work that out and then make an appropriate uh, label and make sure that, that label carries through to anywhere uh, where that content is seen as far as is possible. So yeah, I think I think transparency is going to be really important. But I mean, that's you have to start with having. Um, uh, a vision about what you want to achieve with this and how it's going to help your business, and then from that, you can then start to to talk about um, how you then implement guidelines for staff about how they deal with it, how you transparently talk to uh, members, supporters, uh, subscribers about it. Okay, great. Uh, 
we always require people who can effectively communicate and translate the ongoing disruption to the organization, the newsroom or the boardroom, if you like, in a manner that they can understand, enabling them to take appropriate and effective measures. How do you address this topic if you visit a newsroom, for example? Um, I think, uh, I mean, the, 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 the translation is about um, is about making it relevant uh, to to their jobs. Uh, partly about taking away the fear, inspiring to some extent, but also being realistic about the problems. So it's about language, really. It's about it's about telling stories. About um, so not using technical jargon. Essentially talking about the way in which this can help you do better journalism. So understanding the motivations of the people you're talking to, and then explaining as I did, you know, okay, you work in news gathering, you work in data collection, you know, this is how it can help you do that job better. It's how you can hold more people to account, et cetera. Or you work in, uh, you know, you, you spend half your day wrestling with this difficult technology, which, you know, a robot could do, and you could focus on something more interesting, you know, that kind of stuff. And that kind of inspires people. But then I think the other thing is you have to recognize that there's a lot of uncertainty here and um, and be open with stuff about we don't know how this is going to work yet. But what we will be clear about is the vision of what we stand for and that when we use that technology, we're going to make sure that we're using it in in the, in the interests of audiences, in the interests of, 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 of the company. Uh, so I think stuff like that. And, and obviously, showing examples is always great, as you, as you know. You know, showing examples... Um, but also being realistic about, uh, you know, because the chat GPTs all have been about, you know, these amazing examples, which look incredibly plausible. But when you dig beneath the surface, they're not quite as impressive as they look. So you want to you want to do it with a bit of humor as well. That, that's super. Um, yeah, Ritva, go ahead. As trust is declining, how do you anticipate AI will impact it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the first thing is to um, is, is to come up with um, a framework of why this matters to, to you and to come up with a story that you can tell internally uh, and then and also externally. So, you know, to start getting in place um, workable guidelines about why AI is important, how you're going to use it uh, in the interest of the business and, and your users uh, to make journalism better. And then you you sort of build on that, you iterate on that, and you experiment in areas where you think um, it can it can benefit you most. But you you have to have a sort of a a high level strategy, but not one that closes off the possibility of you know taking up opportunities when they emerge, as they're going to in, in a sort of iterative way over the next few years. So that that really strong sort of vision and message, I suppose, and I, I think the key message from everything we've known before. Well, firstly, this is going to be a huge disruption, so you need to recognize that. Um, but secondly, uh, don't be blown away by the technology. You know, Start with what it is you care about and how the technology can assist, how it can augment what you do already, how it can augment journalism, how it can augment your values. Super. Yes. Thank you so much, thank Nick. Thank you, Nick. Uh, this was brilliant. It's really good to talk. And uh, yeah, thank you. I, I, I look forward to hearing the finished result. Okay, that was Nick. Uh, Ritva, what are your thoughts? What uh, stayed uh, with you? 
Uh, I think my first takeaway is what he said. Uh, what is the current situation of digital transformation? Uh, he mentioned that last 10 years, it has been more of digitalization of uh, distribution. And the next 10 years will be more the transformation of digital content. And certainly this has a lot to do uh, with artificial synthetic, synthetic technologies and certainly how user or audience behaviors will change. He said the next 10 years will look very different than the last 10 years. Uh, Sami, wh what was your first takeaway? What will you take with you? Yeah, like I said earlier, this was absolutely brilliant, uh, both in terms of the clarity of his analysis and how effectively presents uh, it. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I'm... Uh, I'm also a bit surprised how well uh, Nick seems to um, understand AI and how deeply he has obviously been thinking about its impact. Um, I'd say that type of insight is uh, still quite rare to find uh, in this field, even though there is a lot of voices and a lot of discourse about it. But yeah, it was quite refreshing. But tell me more, Ritva, what, what else uh, were your takeaways? Uh, I totally do agree uh, with you. Uh, it was uh, very interesting to hear uh, how he described the possibilities of AI in newsrooms. It was practical uh, and and uh, it's doable, I think, <laughs> also. Um, my second one, I think he gives us a very good advice. Uh, what is the most important guideline? What uh, media companies and news organizations, what they should uh, deeply consider, he said they should be super clear what is their mission, what they want to achieve with this technology, not to get lost in its depths. And Sami, should we be afraid of it? Uh, afraid of AI, you mean? Yeah, I, <laughs> I guess the answer is yes and no. Um, I, I do think the concern raised by Nick about the pollution of our information ecosystem is highly significant and should be a cause for worry. And there are probably other detrimental outcomes that we cannot currently foresee. There's always been uh, those in the different disruptions, that uh, stuff that surprises us. However, I'm not so inclined to get a ticket to Mars on the Elon Musk rocket just yet. So I think I'm I'm okay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Sami. This was really awesome. Yes, uh, thank you. And I guess we'll see each other here in a couple of weeks again, right? Yes, see you then. 